0: Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, If you were here last week, then you know at the end of service, um, Kent stepped down from being an elder uh, because he needs a break. And uh, I want to just say that's a very biblical thing to do. The Bible talks about rest. And there are seasons in our life when um, we need rest and we just need a break. And on behalf of the congregation and myself, I want to thank Kent for his service. And uh, he has lived a life that that we can imitate. He he has uh, sacrificed and served for this congregation, and we are grateful for that. This morning, um, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, You might have to look at the table of contents and find out where that is, but it's in the Old Testament. And we're going to be spending a few weeks in, in, this, in this book, in, in a new series. And so the, the Bible itself is a big book with some big stories. And so all I have to do is say the names Joseph, Moses, David, and we immediately recall these incredible lives of these individuals and these stories, they, they've been turned into these epic movies and TV series. You can think about the, the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston. And, and that movie itself is almost four hours long. You know? or, or The Chosen, which we watched here on Wednesday night. It, it's a popular uh, TV series about the life of Christ. And they're hoping to make it 11 seasons. And so these are epic accounts And they cannot be reduced to sort of a a mini-movie or a short story. These stories, they live on. And they're talked about hundreds and even thousands of years after they happen. When we come to the Bible, we are aware of big stories. We're drawn to them. We want to read them. We want to talk about them and, and teach them to our children. And it's in the midst of these vast tales that some of the other stories uh, get overlooked. And so we know about Isaiah and Jeremiah, but what about Habakkuk? We read the letters of Paul, but what about the letter of Jude? The the books of the Hebrew Bible are arranged in, in categories. And so the first five books, they're books of law or instruction. Then you have books of history, followed by books of wisdom, and finally, the books of the prophets. And at the end of all the books of history are a couple of of smaller books that don't get that much attention. They are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's impossible to look at these books without knowing what has happened up to this point, without knowing their context. These are the last books of history, and so they come at the end of the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And we're familiar with most of the elements of this story. God gives his people a land, and he forms a nation. And the history of this nation, well, it has ups and downs. God guides his people, but often they do not listen. Early on in this story, the people want a king. Even though God comes to them and he says it's not a good idea. You know, there, there are reasons why you shouldn't want this. But they, they, they're persistent and so God gives them what they want. And by the time you get to king number three, that's Solomon, he breaks every command that is given regarding kings in the book of De- Deuteronomy. And this leads to The dividing of the kingdom. And so you have Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and then you have Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And there are many more bad kings that follow. There are a few good ones, but they're primarily bad. But worse than this is that the people of God regularly go after idols, and they do not care for the poor who are in their midst. And God is very patient, very loving, He's very graceful. But eventually, He allows Assyria to capture Israel, the northern kingdom. And then in 587 BC, He allows Babylon to march on Jerusalem and to capture that city and to capture the southern kingdom. And what happens is a few people flee, flee into Egypt and some are left behind in Jerusalem and Judah, but most of the people of God are taken into captivity. And so they are now living in a foreign land under a foreign government. And all of this begins to change when Persia defeats Babylon, And Cyrus, he's the king of Persia. And he releases some of the the Babylonian captives and he grants them the right to rebuild their temples. And we not only read this in scripture, we read about it here with this um, Cyrus cylinder, which was discovered um, in the 1800s in Iraq. But you can now go to England and look at it in the British Museum and it tells about this as well. The first exiles arrived back in Jerusalem in 537 B.C., and so that's 50 years after they were taken captive. Okay, that's the the Cliff Notes version of the history of Israel. But what we need to do to help us understand Nehemiah is to imagine what it would have been like living during these times. And and when reflecting on the people of God in this story, you can actually place them into three categories. And so you have exiles who stay. That is, they stay in Babylon, they stay in Persia. You have exiles who go, they go back to their land. And then you have some who are never exiled. And it's important that we think about each of these groups and the circumstances that they find themselves in. Why they made the decisions that they made. And so first you have exiles who stay. These these individuals had been in Babylon for 50 years. And so just think about this for a moment. Someone who was 10 when they were marched out of Jerusalem would now be 60. Someone who was 20 would now be 70. All of the younger exiles were born in Babylon. They, they do nothing of Israel except for the stories that their parents and their grandparents had told them. Now, as far as we know, life in Babylon was, was not that bad. In fact, we read about several people in the Bible, Nehemiah is one of them, Daniel, others, who did quite well for themselves. People flourished in Babylon. And so it would have been a difficult decision to leave everything that you had, and to go back to a land that had been decimated by war. What do you do? There were a lot of people who just chose to stay. Well, stay here. It's pretty good. And then you have exiles who go. And those who went had to decide if it was worth the risk. There was no guarantee that their home and their land that they had inhabited 50 years earlier would still be theirs. Someone else could have moved in. Someone else could have settled on it. On top of that, it was a long trip back to Israel. And you were going to have to give up everything that you had worked for in Babylon. You would have to sell all your possessions, or at least most of them, and then take your family on a journey where you were just unsure of the outcome. That's not an easy decision to make. But there were some who, who did. They made that decision and they went. And then there were those who were just never exiled. There, there were some who did not flee into Egypt or, or were not taken to Babylon. And, and these individuals were likely uh, very poor. They, they had little or nothing to, to, to offer. Because you see what Babylon did when they took people into captivity is they took all the leaders they took all the people with means the the purpose of this is they did not want Israel rebuilding they wanted to be able to easily control these lands and so the people that they left there were people that they viewed as having no threat they were nobodies they were people on the margins and so you have a decimated land Comprised of a decimated people, it was a land of poverty. Now, knowing all of this, we may ask, you know, why would anyone return? Why would they accept this risk to go from this land that they had called home for 50 years, a land where most people were doing okay or pretty well for themselves? And and to get up and to leave and go back to this land that's decimated by by war, and just, uh, it, it was uncertain of what was going to happen. Well, there's only one answer to that question that makes any sense at all. And it's this. You had to believe that God was going to restore the nation and fulfill his promises. That's the only reason why you would go back. So those who left, they did so because of faith. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, it often means taking a risk that we would not normally take. This is what happens in the life of Abraham who leaves Ur to follow God. Is what happens in the life of, of Moses when he leaves this quiet life of shepherding to go and face the king of Egypt. It's what it meant for Peter and the other disciples who left their jobs to sit at Jesus' feet. It is what it meant for the early church who faced persecution first from the Jews and then later from Rome. It's what happens here in the story of Nehemiah. Faith is taking a risk. It's trusting God when our future is uncertain. It's choosing God over safety and security. The book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding. Nehemiah, we learn in the first chapter at the very end of it, that, that um, this man had a very lucrative job. He was the, the cupbearer bearer. To the king. Now he could have stayed in that position his entire life and and he would have had all his needs provided for him. He would have lived a very comfortable life. He had it made. But then he hears about Jerusalem. He hears that his people are suffering. He hears that the walls of the city have been destroyed and they have not been rebuilt in these last 50 years. And what we learn very early on is that Nehemiah is a man of character. And we know this because he gives up comfort and security to do something good. And so in the midst of destruction and all that is wrong, Nehemiah commits to building. One of the challenges that we face in our culture is that we live in an age of deconstruction. And so people all around us are committed to tearing down. There is no trust in institutions, and so people are wanting to bring them down. We live in an age of cancel culture, where people want to destroy the lives of of anyone who has said the wrong thing. We live in an age of culture wars and partisan politics, where, where people want to crush anyone who disagrees with them. We live in an age of upheaval because everywhere we look, people are just committed to tearing down and bringing down everything that is around us. And so what do we do as the people of God? We need to hear the word of the Lord. We need to hear Nehemiah, who faced similar circumstances. What did Nehemiah do When everything around him was destroyed, he committed to building something good. And this is what we are to do in our day and age. We're to learn from Nehemiah and follow his lead. In a world that is devoted to destruction, we need to build something good. Build something no matter how small it is. Build something even if we're not going to live to see its completion our response to all this tearing down that is going on among us or around us is to be to build something that lasts. And so where does Nehemiah begin? Well, he begins with hearing the news. And when he hears the news, he mourns. And so this is Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How we respond to bad news tells us something about ourselves. Responding with anger does not help. James 1 and verse 20 tells us that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And so nothing good comes from a bunch of angry people. Instead, Jesus says... Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nehemiah mourns when he hears bad news. And this tells us that his heart is soft. And so he refuses to grow bitter and hard hearted. He has compassion. He wants to do something to help. And so adding more fire or adding more gasoline to the fire does not help. Responding to destruction with more destruction does not make the situation any better. When we hear bad news, we need to have compassionate hearts and and then consider what is it that I can do in this situation to help? What can I build? How can I make things better? And so after mourning, Nehemiah devotes himself to fasting and prayer. And again, we learn how to respond to what is bad in the world. Don't complain about it if you haven't prayed about it. Don't criticize unless you're willing to be part of the solution. You know, there was a whole group of people in Babylon who were not going anywhere. They were unwilling to to leave. They were unwilling to help. They were staying right where they were. Nehemiah is different. Nehemiah sees what is wrong, and even though he has a comfortable and cushy job, he decides to act, and he gives up a good thing in order to make a difference. Nehemiah chooses a life of building something good, and the first thing that he builds is a prayer life. And so he develops a relationship with God from which everything else that he's going to do comes from. And so his good works, his good deeds, his faithful words, they they, they all come from this relationship that he has built with God. What lays ahead of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's task, is not an easy one. He's going to face adversity. People are going to criticize him. They are going to oppose him. He's going to hit some rough patches. And the reason he can face all of this and not give up and not despair is because he has this strong relationship with God. And so before he acts, he spends time in prayer. And it's not just that he prays, it's how he prays. And so we need to learn from this prayer of Nehemiah that we have, which comprises most of chapter 1, It's Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11. listen, Listen to his prayer. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. How does Nehemiah pray? He prays first by acknowledging who God is. The world that we live in is a mess. The the world that he was living in is very similar, it was a mess. His people in, in, in his homeland are suffering. His city is in ruins. And convincing people that they need to go back and to help, that's going to be a difficult thing. There are not going to be many people who want to sign up for that. And so what is Nehemiah going to do? Well, the first thing he does is he takes a deep breath and he begins to pray. And he prays to the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And so he takes comfort in knowing that God always keeps his promises. That God is always faithful and God always acts out of love. And so when our world gets turned upside down, we need to remember who God is. And this is where Nehemiah begins. But then he keeps going. And he confesses sin... And this is, this is interesting. He, he confesses his own sin, which we're very familiar with. But he also confesses the sins of his family and the sins of his nation. So he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So he's talking about the sins of others. But then he says, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. You know, we sometimes protest against this. We don't like the idea of confessing sins that we did not commit. Sins that we're not responsible for. But this is exactly what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah does. And he doesn't just do this once. It says that he does it over and over again. He does it day and night. He goes before God and confesses sins. And he prays for sins that have happened in the past. Sins that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago. Sins that took place before he was born. He acknowledges before God many different sins and and not all of them are his well, what's going on here? Well, several different things. First, what God wants from Nehemiah, what he wants from us, he wants a contrite heart. And so God is not concerned that Nehemiah acknowledges too many sins or, or sins that he did not commit. He's pleased with Nehemiah because his heart is right. He's humble. He's willing to confess his own sins and, and the sins of others as well. So it comes from a very humble place. Second, sin is complex. The effects of sin last for generations. We're told this several times in Scripture. That generation and generation will endure the effects of sin. And so sin can be what we do, but sin can also be what we do not do. And so someone else may be in the wrong, but perhaps we failed them along the way. We may have not loved our enemies as we should have. Or we may have not showed someone kindness. Or we may have judged someone rather than shown them grace. And so in a world filled with sin, it's better to go big. We're not going to get in trouble with God for confessing too many sins. Third, and this is really important. And, and I think this is something that we, we don't realize or we might forget, is that we are all priests. And we're reminded of this in, in 1 Peter 2.9, one of the places, several places though, where it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession. Something changes under the new covenant. And now that we're all priests, and what that means is we all have a responsibility. And one of those responsibilities of a priest is to pray for others. And so we're to go to God on behalf of others. This is our job. It's our responsibility. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's acting as a priest. He's praying for those who cannot pray. He's praying for those who who may have forgot to pray or those who refuse to pray or, or those whose heart is so hard they're not going to pray. He's a righteous man and he knows that God is going to hear his prayer. Amen. So we live in this world with many faults. And and one of the silliest things we can do is just waste time arguing about who is responsible. And in doing so refuse to do anything about a problem because we had nothing to do about. Do with it or, or we didn't cause it. And I know this type of behavior because I see it with my children. Something happens, you know, they they, they make a mess, they spill something. And and what happens next is both children argue about whose fault it is. And and they refuse to clean it up because they're convinced that they are in the right. And and they won't clean it because they're too busy arguing and calling names. And me as a parent, I don't care who did it, just acknowledge what happened and work to clean it up. And, And something similar often happens in our world. We become so focused on the other side that we don't do anything to address the problems that are right in front of us. Nehemiah gives us this this wonderful pattern for our lives and, 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 in fact, this wonderful pattern for the world. Confess and then work to make things better. Give up the arguing. Give up the debating. Just acknowledge that a wrong has been committed And then do what you can to make it right. And it doesn't matter if it was your neighbor or if it was your grandfather or your co-worker. Our focus should be on what we can do to right the wrong. Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer of repentance and action. And so he not only acknowledges sin, but he commits in this prayer to changing his behavior and and to doing something about these wrongs that are in the world. And so he he prays in verse 8 and 9, Remember the word that you commanded Moses, your servant. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But, but, if you return to me, and this is a phrase that's often used for repentance, and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to establish my name. At the very end of the prayer, he prays that God will give him success. And so Nehemiah is not going to pray and do nothing. He is going to pray and he is going to act. And he's building this life of prayer. But he's also building this life of repentance and this life of service. And he refuses to sit still as long as there are wrongs in this world. What do we do in a world that is not right? What do we do in a world where everyone is just wanting to deconstruct and to tear down? What we do is build. We build and we keep on building. We build a life of prayer. We build ministries. With, with, with people in our community. And, and there are people doing this here now. Uh, some will do it tomorrow at Amen. I think about Paul Brodsgard and the Ramp Project. or I think about Jerry and the work that he does with the, the Boy Scouts. And I know there are many others in here that are, that are building things. We build relationships with people who, who need to be encouraged. We, we build relationships with people who do not know God, who do not know Christ. We build ministries committed to the acts of service. We build something good, no matter how small it might be or how long it takes. And because we are followers of God, time is on our side. I love this quote from Peter Lighthart. It's a quote that we need to treasure in our hearts and, and one that we need to maybe visit regularly and commit to. He says, talking about Christians, we can afford to be patient. We need to be like medieval architects, beginning projects that will take 300 years to complete. Start a cathedral that you know you won't see finished. Start a project that you know others will have to take up after you die. The church is a magnificent community. We pick up what others began before us and we work to finish it. And so what legacy are you leaving future generations? What are you building now that that others will one day have to come along and, and complete on your behalf? If you want to be like the world, go and tear down destroy, deconstruct, take apart, and leave nothing for the people who come after you. As followers of God, we're called to something different. We are called to create, to build, to reconstruct, to invest in and encourage others to do good, And we are committed to leaving something for those who come after us. We're doing a good work, a work that will continue on after we die. And so Nehemiah is not just another story. It is our story. It's God's word speaking and working in our lives today. This is the word of the Lord. Now we must go, and we must build. Let's pray. Father, we come before you at this time, and we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for his faith. We thank you for his courage. We thank you for his willingness to do something good in the midst of destruction and wrong. And Father, may we learn from his example. May we not become discouraged by everything around us. May we commit to doing something good and to building things here in our community. Let's make a difference by building something that's going to last. Building something that will continue for years and years to come. We're so grateful for for Jesus and what he's done for us. And that he walks with us on this journey.